question that we can answer, please let us know. We want to be helpful. And uh, my name is Brian Habig. I'm one of the pastors here. It's Tim Udodge that was up just a little while ago. But um, glad to see, glad to see you here. Um, is Beth Dunsmore? She's, is she in here? Where's Beth? Just wave, Beth. Okay. Let me tell you something. Beth Dunsmore did a ton of stuff behind the scenes, and um, we'd be sad to see you go anyway. But I really do want to say thank you. That um, you know, that in Jesus's eyes, that's great. That's greatness. And so, uh, and I know so many of you serve in so many ways, but you did a lot that was unseen to many of us. So I really want to say thank you, and that we we miss you. Psalm 57. If you don't have a Bible, you can just follow the, the text there in the bulletin. A phrase that Christians use sometimes, I'm, I've probably said it up here before, is living out your faith. It's a good phrase. And um, when you use that, does it bring a mental picture with it? I mean, what, if, you, if you talk about living out your faith, what would you imagine that to look like? And it might look to you like it's, it's someone reading their Bible very carefully and studiously, or it might look like somebody out there, uh, you know, doing a hard thing because they love the Lord. They're, they're getting their hands dirty because they love the Lord. And all that would be great. Those are great things. But maybe the most famous passage about faith in the New Testament is in the book of Hebrews. It's Hebrews chapter 11. And the beginning of the chapter sort of... It's not many times the Bible defines a term. It defines what faith is. And then it gives all these examples of people who had faith in the Old Testament. And then toward the end of the chapter, it says that this. It describes people who, had, who lived out their faith as wandering, wandering around in dens and caves of the earth. Now, that's not my mental picture, typically, of, of living out your faith, is to be homeless... And to be in a cave, and when I say in a cave, don't think with my friends and a headband with a light and REI equipment and, you know, spelunking and things like that. This is, you know, run for your life, go back into the dark part, hide because someone's trying to kill you. Um, that is the context of this psalm. I mean, there's some psalms that we don't know what the occasion was when the psalmist composed it. But on this one we do. This is one of the Psalms by David. The last two we've looked at were not by David, but this one's by David. And he's in great danger. And he's hiding in a cave. And the stakes are high. Someone's not just trying to find him and imprison him. They're trying to destroy him. And he's living out his faith. Now, here's what I want you to listen to. Uh, when, When we think about being a stable person a steadfast person. I mean, I don't think anybody in the room would say, you know, I really want to become more flaky. I really would like to be more unstable in my life. I would like to be more reactionary in my life. No one would say that. In this psalm, what David's going to model is what does actual steadfastness look like? Stability? Uh, Sometimes when the staff prays together, when we have our staff meeting, a, a kind of a common prayer request is, steadiness of heart. What does it look like? And Psalm 57 is a window into what stability, steadfastness of heart looks like. Psalm 57. Be merciful to me, O God. Be merciful to me, 
For in you my soul takes refuge. In the shadow of your wings I will take refuge till the storms of destruction pass by. I cry out to God most high, to God who fulfills His purpose for me. He will send from heaven and save me. He will put to shame him who tramples on me. God will send out His steadfast love and His faithfulness. My soul is in the midst of lions. I lie down amid fiery beasts, the children of man whose teeth are spears and arrows, whose tongues are sharp swords. Be exalted, O God, above the heavens. Let your glory be over all the earth. They set a net for my steps. My soul was bowed down. They dug a pit in my way, but they have fallen into it themselves. My heart is steadfast, O God. My heart is steadfast. I will sing and make melody. Awake, my glory. Awake, O harp and lyre. I will awake the dawn. I will give thanks to you, O Lord, among the peoples. I will sing praises to you among the nations. For your steadfast love is great to the heavens, your faithfulness to the clouds. Be exalted, O God, above the heavens. Let your glory be over all the earth. Amen. Let's pray together. Our Father, these are great words, and yet our prayer is that we not just hear a talk about words. We pray that we would feed upon every word that proceeds from your mouth. Uh, we have tried to live on bread alone, and we can't. Man cannot live by bread alone. We need every word that proceeds from the mouth of our Lord. And so please feed us and let us hear, and we ask this in Christ's name. Amen. A poem that you might have studied in high school or somewhere somehow, uh, Richard Corey by Edwin Arlington Robinson. Whenever, it's not long, so take heart. Whenever Richard Corey went downtown, we people on the pavement looked at him. He was a gentleman from soul to crown, clean favored and imperially slim. And he was always quietly arrayed, and he was always human when he talked, but still he fluttered pulses when he said, Good morning. And he glittered when he walked. And he was rich, yes, richer than a king, and admirably schooled in every grace, and fine. We thought he was everything to make us wish that we were in his place. So on we worked and waited for the light and went without the meat and cursed the bread. And Richard Corey, one calm summer night, went home and put a bullet through his head. And I remember the first time I, 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 as a student I heard that poem. You know, boys kind of like poems like that. Like, all right, this is finally interesting at the, at the end. <laughs> Uh, but it's not so much then when you know one. And I, I'm, I'm looking at a room full of people who... You've, a lot of you have lived long enough that you, you've seen this happen. And it's, it's tragic when anybody, anybody takes their life. And just it's an occasion to say this, um, it's never our place to take our life. That's, that's God's work. It's tragic when anybody does it, but, but there's just something especially unnerving, uh, jarring, 
when you've got somebody and they just gave off such cues of stability. You know, they gave off such cues of strength and togetherness. And what you realize is internally, they must have been desperate. They were despairing and I couldn't tell it. And it does raise the question about, all right, so like, what is real stability and what's not? Because let's go back to what we were talking about earlier. All of us would say, I don't want to be flaky. I want to be a stable person. I want to be a strong person. I want to be somebody that when life is tough, you know, you, you know what to do. That's great. It's, I mean, it's desirable. But our mental picture of what stability is might be that we're on top of everything. Our picture of stability might be that all the ducks are in a row. But that's just not how life goes. In other words, if that's stability, that means that stability comes from the outside in. And Psalm 57 is a, it's a fascinating contrast because the circumstances are so unsteady. And God has upset the apple cart. And yet, what does He say in verse 7? I mean, this is what I'm kind of focusing in on. In verse 7, what does David say? My heart is steadfast, O God. My heart is steadfast. Now, don't picture somebody, you know, walking down a beautiful trail and life is going great and they're rested. He's, he's under great duress. And he says, I'm stable. In my heart, in the real inside, I'm steadfast. So, like, what does that look like in the living out of steadfastness? What is it looked like in the living out of faith. Now, I want to look at three things here about this. First off, realism, and then review, and then reach. Now, I think I've had all sermon points start with the same letter one time, but I've never had the first two letters. So, this is big, okay? As my, as my high school pastor used to say, this is a high and holy moment in the life of our church. But seriously, to, steadfastness lived out. All right, realism, review, and, and reach. All right, first off, the realism. Uh, if you look, at, this is not in the bulletin, but if you look in a hard copy of the Bible and you look in the book of Psalms, not all of them, but some of the Psalms will have a little, a little notation under the Psalm number and before the text starts. Now, we don't consider that to be part of the breathed-out Word of God, but it is important because it's a historic note. And sometimes it tells you the context in which that psalm was composed. A lot of psalms don't. This one does. And here's what it says. It's written by David when he's in a cave and he's hiding out from Saul. Now, I'm not going to preach two sermons, but just so that we're on the same page, quick little historic backup. The first king of Israel was King Saul. And he forsook the Lord. He wasn't the king that he should have been. And God had the prophet Samuel go to young David when he was a young man, when he was a shepherd, as Tim mentioned, and anoint him as the next king of Israel. But after he was anointed, Saul was still on the throne. So there's this weird in-between period where David's been anointed, the rightful king, but he actually is working for Saul. Well, Saul goes from being suspicious of David to threatened by David to intent on killing him. And David realizes this. And he goes to Saul's son, who is David's just best, best, best friend, 
uh, in some ways, the love of his life, Jonathan. And he says, your father's going to kill me. And Jonathan says, no, 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 no. If, if my, my father doesn't do anything without my knowledge, if he was going to try to kill you, I would know about it. Well, Jonathan does a little research and he realizes my father is trying to destroy my friend David. And so they work out a system. Jonathan sends David a message and just says, run, run for your life. He's coming after you. So, you know, without a lot of preparation, without the REI equipment, David heads out. Some others are with him. And he hides in a cave. That's when he composes this song. And, and just to understand how, how high the stakes are, I mean, this is, this is a time of warfare. No guns, no mortar, you know, War and combat is face-to-face, hand-to-hand, unless you're talking about archery. That's what Saul and his men are trained to do. They're coming after him to kill him up close. And look at the kind of language he uses. You know, the psalm starts off, and maybe it sounds kind of flowery and sort of Old Testament-ish. You know, be merciful to me, O God, be merciful to me. In you my soul takes refuge in the shadow of your wings. But then what does he say? until the storms of destruction pass by. The stakes could not be higher. Verse 4, My soul is in the midst of lions. I lie down uh, amid fiery beasts, the children of man, whose teeth are spears and arrows, whose tongues are sharp swords. Now, why is that important? Something that we talked about last week is that spiritual health for God's people means that we're not reacting to what happens to us, to what we see. You know, we looked at last week at a psalm, and it wasn't David saying, my life took a hard turn, I was going through these hard things, and I just reacted. And he said, I acted more like an animal than a human being. I acted more like an animal than one of your children. Because I wasn't thinking, I just reacted on instinct. Steadfastness is not reacting. But here's what I want to think about from Psalm 57. It's also not pretending. Steadfastness is not pretending. That part of steadfastness of heart is to say to God the way things actually are. And I wonder if, like, if that's the kind of vocabulary that... I said that weird. Vocabulary. Okay. Sorry about that. <clears throat> I wonder if that's the kind of vocabulary that we traffic in. To say, like, to be on our knees or just, in a, just to be in a chair at the stoplight and to say to God, my enemies are trying to destroy me. Now, when you hear that, you might be thinking, well, okay, but I don't really have enemies like that. I don't have people that are trying to wipe me out. And... I think the Bible says we're supposed to love our enemies. You know, we're not supposed to pray against them or whatever. If you're a believer, you do have enemies. Really, if you're a human being, you do have enemies. And we mention this from time to time. You know, there's a holy trinity. Even though the Bible never uses the word trinity, that term captures something that's all through the Bible. There's God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. One God, three persons, the holy trinity. But Christians throughout history have said there's also an unholy trinity. The world, the flesh, and the devil. Now real quick, just so we know what we mean by those terms. When we say the world, we don't mean planet Earth. God made planet Earth. 
We're not against. We're for earth. But it means just a global human system of not needing God, of not loving God, of not following God, of not depending on God. And all the ways that plays out, that's the world. The flesh, what's, is that this body, skin, bones? No, God made that. That's good. The flesh is the biblical term in a believer of the residue of the old me. So I might love the Lord, I might love His people, but man, I'm selfish. And man, I can hate you when I set my mind to it. And man, I love my stuff. And love, man, I love my comfort. That's the flesh. And the devil, a real intelligent being, an archangel who fell and is evil and wants the demise of God's people. Christ did not talk about him as a mythic figure. He talked about him as a real being. That's the unholy trinity. I want to think about one of those, um, the flesh. One way that the flesh can manifest itself with an enemy sort of posture is addictions. Understand, there's all kinds of ways the flesh shows itself. And even if it's not substances or an aberrant behavior, everybody in here is addicted to things that are unhealthy. I mean, we're addicted to our sin. But I might, you might be here this morning, and you really are addicted to something that you take or that you drink or, or what you do with food or a destructive behavior. And... How, how, how should we pray about that? I mean, should we just kind of go into a pious way of talking to God, like maybe we heard a Sunday school teacher pray, to just say like, God, thank you for this day, and please let... I mean, that's great to thank God for today. That's a good thing to pray. But can we be that realistic to say, my enemy, like this thing in me that is just still bent in on myself, that doesn't want you, He's trying to destroy me. Because here's the thing. It's not like God doesn't know that anyway. Uh, the Bible never calls us to pretend. Whether it's great pain, great confusion, great attack of the enemy, or whatever, steadfastness looks like realism. To say it to God. They or it or he or she is trying to destroy me. It's a realism. But then there's review. Now, what does the review look like? Think about this. When we hit a trial, confusion, a lot of pain, what is the question that tends to run to the front of our mind? And, and I, I mentioned this at the first service. A preacher friend of mine has said this, you know, the more faithful we preach, the bigger a hypocrite we become. The first time he said that, I went, oh, great. But it's true, you know, I like, like the more honestly, faithfully a preacher opens up the word to you, that means the bigger a hypocrite the preacher is by comparison. Now, I, that's every week, but I feel this acutely on what I'm about to say. And it's this, when we hit pain, where our hearts run, the first question is what? What do I do? 
Or what do we do? What is the question, in a sense, that David is responding to in this psalm? The primary question is, who is God? Look at how he unpacks that. First off, just who is God, period. Verse 2, I cry out to God most high. That's actually one of his names in the Old Testament. It's in Psalms a lot. El Elyon, God Most High. And here's what one theologian said about this. And uh, it's kind of cool when theologians in big, dry academic books say something, they kind of start preaching. And this, this sounded like he kind of, he kind of went to preaching. He's, this theologian's talking about that Hebrew name, and he says this. Names like this are not just poetic attributes. They're all based on actual dealings of God with His people. It's not that mankind has an idea of God and then selects and heaps up suitable epithets. And then he says this, He is this God whether we experience Him as such or not. It seems that in the psalm, David is feeling that God is God most high. But the deal is, whether I'm feeling it or not in the dark, in the isolation, in the confusion as to how this is going to turn out. Why would you let me be anointed and I'm in a cave? He's God most high. He is that. What else does he say? Look down in verse, verse 10. For your steadfast love is great to the heavens, your faithfulness to the clouds. And again, this is where you've got to keep saying, he's in a cave. And would you think, man, nothing drives home the love of God like living in a cave. Nothing drives home the faithfulness of God like homelessness and confusion. But as he's just immersed in that, he says, this is what your steadfast love, like you have that. And you are that faithful. The world can't hold your faithfulness. So first off, who is God? But then personalizes it. Who is God to me as I'm in this cave? Look at what he says in verse 2. He says, I cry out to God most high, to God who fulfills his purpose for me. Now, if you had been anointed king and someone's trying to kill you and you're living in a cave when you should be on the throne, would the first thing that would run to your mind is, you know, he is really fulfilling this wonderful plan for me. Would you be sitting in the cave going, you know, God loves me and has a wonderful plan for my life. But that comes out of him. And then what does he say? You you know, we just looked at, he says, your steadfast love is there, your faithfulness, the world can't hold it. What does he say in verse 3? God will send out his steadfast love and his faithfulness. Now think about that image. I'm in this cave. I don't know how this is going to turn out. God is in heaven and he possesses all this unchanging love. And unlike unfaithful people, he's always faithful. He's always faithful. But he's not just sitting on his throne possessing that, looking down going, I hope, I, I hope it goes okay. But he sends out something of who he is to earth to this cave, He sends it to me. 
to rescue me. He's that personal of a God. Now, I, I, I want to think about this some more, about how prone we are to think, what will I do when I'm under attack, when I'm in pain, when I'm in confusion, when I'm in the dark, versus who is God? I, you know, as I thought about this psalm, I thought, what's, what's one of the most famous stories about David? David and Goliath. If you read that chapter in 1 Samuel, here's what you'll see. It's a pretty long chapter. Philistines versus Israelites. Philistines, they don't play. Israelites, really scared. They meet up, and instead of fighting army against army, this champion, gigantic warrior named Goliath steps out and says, Israel, you send out your champion. So instead of army versus army, champion versus champion. If you beat me, if you kill me, the Philistines serve you. But if I kill your champion, you know how that turns out. And he had like a perfect record. And Israel was just shaking in his boots. And if you read that chapter, the question that Israel is asking is, what will we do? And David steps in. Here's the thing. He's not passive. He does something very decisive. He kills the giant. But he comes in and he asks a different question. What's the question? Who is God? And who is this guy to defy God? And that sounds obvious until you're in pain. And then you start screaming, what do I do? Um, Now, let me say this. A recurring theme as we've been looking in Psalms is that sometimes the psalmist says something and it's even more true than the psalmist realized. In other words, he writes it, but what this ends up meaning for God's people is so much bigger than he even imagined. Look back at, at verse 3. What, is that? what does David write? He says, God will send out his steadfast love and his faithfulness. Now, what would that have looked like in David's imagination? It probably looked like, I don't know how this is going to turn out, but maybe Saul's men just flip out and kill him, or they're all attacked by animals, or there's some other enemy that comes along and they get diverted, they have to go back and fight them, and I figure out some way out of this. I don't know how this is going to turn out, but God from heaven is going to send his love and faithfulness and change the circumstances, and I'll be rescued. He almost certainly would have thought of that as a circumstance being sent. He would not have thought of it as a person. That here's the thing, that even though what David was writing was true and real, we know something he doesn't know. That hundreds and hundreds of years later, his great-great-great-great-great-great-great-great-grandson would be both man from the lineage of David and the second person of the Trinity and that this would be the ultimate seal the deal cosmic demonstration that God loves His people that God loves His people and He's so faithful to them that He's going to rescue them from the ultimate enemies the ultimate enemies are not Philistines The ultimate enemies are not debt or a bad marriage. 
or loneliness or addictions or depression, although those are formidable. The ultimate enemies are the world and our own flesh and the devil. And if we fought them in our own strength, the sharpest, most omnicompetent person in this room would be destroyed. And God loves this world of sinners. He so, he so loves the world that He sends His Son. The ultimate demonstration of the very steadfast love and faithfulness of God to rescue anyone who looks to Him and says, help me, have mercy. So David, he's reviewed. He's in the cave. Instead of reacting, he says, what, what, what do I know that's true? And then there's the reach. And I really want you to think like, reach. What does the reach look like? A couple of things. Prayer and worship. Even singing. How, how do you see the prayer? The whole psalm's a prayer. But what does he ask for? Verse 1, be merciful to me, O God, be merciful to me. You could translate that from the Hebrew, Hebrew, be gracious to me, give me grace. Isn't that something? Not kill that jerk. He kind of would have the right to pray that. Kill this wicked king and place your anointed one on the throne where he should be. But what what is he asking? Give me mercy. Give me unearned favor. I cry out to you, God Most High. I know you're going to fulfill your purpose for me. He prays. And I I know I've said it before, but let me say it again. When we take review and we say, this is how bad it is, this is who God is, whether it is at the stoplight or on a walk or on your knees or at church or whatever, it is always, always, always good and healthy and steadfast to reach for God and say, help. You're God, but I'm not. And you know why this is wise, but I don't. Be merciful to me. And it may be that some of you have been needing to say that for months or years about very particular things. It may be that this morning that's going to sort of unlodge and you're finally going to say that. That's steadfastness. That is health. But here's the amazing thing. It's not just prayer, but it's worship. Like, go back and read this. Verse, start in verse 7. My heart is steadfast, O God. My heart is steadfast. I will sing and make melody. Awake, my glory. Awake, O harp and lyre. I will awake the dawn. And I mean, not to be flippant, but as I read that, I thought, how loud are you going to sing? And how, I mean, if you're hiding... Are you serious? It's just like, it just kind of jumps out. He's in a cave and doesn't know how it's going to turn out. And he says, I will wake the sun up to sing about God. He even sort of gives you a lyric, verses 5 and 11. Be exalted, O God, above the heavens. Let your glory be over all the earth. And I don't know how much people still sing it, but there was a praise song that was big for a while that used that lyric. Be exalted, O Lord, above the heavens. Let your glory be over all the earth. If you know that song, you know, it just it could feel to you like a church sanctuary. But like the guy that wrote it is kneeling in sand. 
Like he's kneeling in sand in the dark. Be exalted, O God, above the heavens. Let your glory be over all the earth. It's, it's not that hard. And again, here's the hypocrisy on my part. It's not that hard to pray, God, make this better, and to think, and when he does that, I'm really going to worship him. That's not hard. And it's not that steadfast. It's better than nothing. But stability is, I will worship you, whatever happens. I will feel the way you want me to feel. I will... uh, I will be confused the way you want me to be confused. I will suffer the way you want me to suffer. It's it's what Job prayed. Job is decimated. Family decimated, wealth decimated, body decimated. The Lord gave, the Lord takes, the Lord gives. Blessed be the name of the Lord. That steadfastness. Um, Something to think about from our own American church history is that it is in, I'll just say in the South, since we're in the South right now, it's amazing to think about the experience of African American Christians in the latter part of the 19th century after the Emancipation Proclamation and well into the 20th century because when when officially they had rights that they should be afforded and we're not experiencing it, and there was no prospect of anything changing soon, they worshipped God and wrote songs and sang. That is steadfastness. A woman that I had the privilege to visit with one day in the southern side neighborhood, one neighborhood that way is Hampton Pinckney, one more is Southern Side, and even though it's on the western edge of the city, it's called Southern Side because it was uh, first mostly peopled by uh, employees of the Southern Railroad. And I had the privilege of visiting with the ladies, lived there her whole life. She knows everything about Southern Side. And we were just chatting, and then we really started to talk about spiritual things, and she kind of zeroed in on me. I felt like I was meeting with a dignitary. We're both in wing chairs and looking in her living room, and she said... I love the Lord. He has heard heard my cry many times. And I I left there thinking, I never hear anyone say that. It's like the first person I've ever heard say that outside of the Psalms. He has heard my cry many times. That is steadfastness. Let me end with this. Um, I'm sorry I'm so teary, but, you know, I don't hide in that sentence, so. Uh, dot, dot, dot. Um, Martin Luther reportedly said, uh, half these stories about Luther, I don't know if they're true or not. I think this one's true. But allegedly, he told his congregation that I have preached the gospel to you so much and you're so slow to hear it that I could take my Bible and bang it about your heads which is in, called in ministry the direct approach. <laughs> and I, not, that's not the philosophy of ministry that we embrace here, but, uh, but kind of along the same lines, I want to say this. As a preacher, 
and a fellow sinner, um, I talk to you from the Word of God on his behalf. And I just want to say full disclosure, as long as they let me stay here, I'm going to keep telling you that God sent us his most cherished treasure because he loves us. Not a thing and not an an emanation of power, but the person of his son. He sent his son. And that is the thing you have got to hang on to when you hit pain. When you're in the cave, when you don't understand why would a loving God do this, that I don't have to doubt that God is God. I don't have to doubt that He is God Most High. I don't have to doubt that He will fulfill His purpose for me because He sent His steadfast love and faithfulness from heaven to me. And if you have never believed on the Lord Jesus Christ, believe on the one. Reach out for the one who is His steadfast love and faithfulness. Amen. Let's pray. Abba, Father, please take Your Word, seal it in our hearts, cause it to bear 30, 60, or 100-fold fruit because of the perfect work of Your Son and the work of Your Spirit. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. I don't know if you've ever been uh, maybe invited to a dinner before, uh, maybe a party, and...